Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Bunga Cast. It's Friday, the 20th of May. My name is Alex Hokuli. I'm here with Philip Cunliffe. Hello, Philip. Hi. And with George Hor. Hello. Hello, Alex. Hello. Hello, boys. Um, we're here to discuss inflation in another three articles. Uh, if you don't know, three articles is a place where we review news and opinion and analysis pieces on a specific issue as a way of trying to stake a claim and develop a perspective on contemporary political problems. Uh, last time we dealt with France, before that with Ukraine, and now we are dealing with inflation. Of course, the issue, the big issue of the moment. Uh, and we've got three different pieces from different perspectives, providing a different type of analysis, and we're going to review them and try to uh, yeah, provide a perspective on them. So to start off, uh, I'm going to start actually today. Um, what I've got is a, a piece by Adam Tews in his chart book, which is always excellent. Um, and he looks at various analysis of what drives inflation. Um, this is something that came out on May 17th, so just a couple of days ago. Um, so Adam Tews starts off by noting, obviously, that uh, the impact on household budgets is being felt, especially on the least well-off, that there's a cost of living crisis, um, but you know, poses the important question, where is this coming from? Uh, he looks at various analyses carried out by bankers, by policy institutes, by think tanks, and so on, uh, and notes that, first of all, um, based on one sort of study in the US, there's been a real change between the inflation that we're seeing since 2020 and the inflation that was seen between 1979 and 2019, effectively the whole neoliberal period. During the whole neoliberal period, what the largest element that accounted for um, inflation was unit labor costs, which is primarily wages, but not only. Uh, Non-labor input costs, for example, things like energy um, and corporate profits had less of a factor in rising inflation. Today, that picture has completely flipped around. So in the past uh, year and a half or so, what has mainly accounted for the rise in prices is corporate profits. And unit labor costs are like a minor part of that. So you're basically talking about corporate profits and rising energy prices, which are behind uh, the rise in prices. Um, he goes on to note and look through uh, various indices looking at how real wages are falling. They're falling in the Eurozone, um, which is to say you know, that nominal wages, um, the increased nominal wages is falling below the rate of inflation. Um, and this is a, a factor that um, you know, seems to be continuing, right? But he asks, you know, what could cause this imbalance to shift effectively that the rich are you know, doing well, um, corporate profits are doing well, and uh, you know, people are being uh, squeezed by the fact that their wages are stagnant or rising very slowly while prices are really biting. Um, and he looks at the data and you know, comes to the conclusion, which we've discussed a bunch on this podcast before, which is basically that you know, trade union density it continues to decline. Um, the basic means for workers to have leverage um, has declined. And so the prospect for rising wages seems to be pretty slim, pretty unlikely. Um, and in fact, there's even uh, the, the correlation between wages and price inflation seems to have gone negative, which is to say um, there doesn't even seem to be much of a relationship or hasn't been in recent years um, between rising wages and price inflation. So it's coming from somewhere else. 
But how could workers respond effectively to these rising wages? What could cause um, what the, the kind of dreaded element of the late 70s, which is a wage price spiral where wages rise to keep uh, in line with prices and prices rise in, in tandem and, and it spirals upwards. Um, but, you know, Tews is basically looking at how this could happen in a way as how workers could catch up and have their wages rise to account for rising prices. Um, and so he kind of goes and anal analyzes, um, you know, where different um, wages have risen recently, for example. So, you know, you've, we've seen this in the US recently, and that's mainly been down to tighter labor markets rather than workers' own activity, you know, trade union organizing and bargaining and so on. Um, and one interesting thing uh, taken from uh, an analysis done by Matt Klein at Overshoot uh, is that the restaurant meal actually is a way of capturing the entire economy in microcosm. Workers cook meals, take orders, clean using a mix of durable and perishable ingredients. The owner has to rent a venue with a kitchen and comply with local regulations. Uh, and since dining at a, re as a restaurant is a luxury for most people, uh, the willingness to spend and tip is going to be sensitive to their own financial situation. So actually it can, it can provide a pretty good picture um, in microcosm of the broader price index. And what you find certainly in the US is like the, the, the kind of restaurant score, as it were, shooting up massively. You know, it's kind of... Um, kind of fluctuated around zero for a long time, and now it's shot up to nearly 10%. So that's, um, that's quite stark. Um, but the question is, you know, rising wages in the restaurant industry in the US, for example, don't tend to spill over to other areas. So for all the talk of new uh, organizing in these sectors, you know, there's all this talk about um, unionizing at different Starbucks um, Starbucks units in, across the US, that doesn't tend to spill over into uh, the rest of the economy. And, you know, as, as kind of those sort, sorts of service jobs are only a small proportion of the wider labor force, it doesn't have that much impact. Um, so, but what actually does have an impact is manufacturing wages. Um, and manufacturing wages seem to have risen a little bit. Um, and meanwhile, the only area where there has been a very clear market kind of uh, attempt to keep pace with prices uh, is public sector wages and public sector wages don't seem to have this spillover. Um, so it still remains a question of where uh, the kind of impetus could emerge from for wages to uh, push upwards to keep track with prices so that um, people's real incomes actually rise rather than fall as they have been doing recently. Uh, Adam Tews notes that the crucial thing to remember is that workers are not the only actors who might generate these spillover effects. As the data for profits show, corporations and management have not been idle. They clearly sensed an opportunity in the aftermath of COVID and have seized it. The question is whether other social forces could do so too. So um, I think I'll leave that there. There's some other political points towards the end of it, which we can pick out in our discussion. Yeah, it's a really good piece. Um, and I think, in fact, I would say, I mean, it's uh, it's one of a number of very kind of thoughtful and smart pieces that have come out on inflation, um, which go beyond just the kind of technical aspects of what's happening and you know, how far it stacks up with economic theory, but also thinking of it more broadly in terms of the political economy of it, I suppose. And one of those pieces, in fact, I mean, We'll be discussing um, shortly the Compact Magazine piece by Christopher Caldwell. Um, 
So I suppose the only other, the two points that I, in addition to what you were saying, Alex, the two points or a few points that I took from this is for all the kind of, um, I suppose, the celebration over Chris Smalls and the union organizing victory at the Amazon plant, um, the numbers, you know, the data that um, Adam Tease presents here puts it in perspective that there is really no turnaround in labor organizing. So there's lots of... Um, kind of anticipation with a tighter labor market there's anticipation of this kind of wage shock that never actually never actually arrives um and interestingly he also notes something you didn't mention is that the even though there is no kind of mechanism for the classic wage price spiral um markets are nonetheless kind of if you look at um, what markets have kind of built into their expectations they're assuming there is going to be inflation on the basis of wages rising, despite mm. the fact that there's no obvious kind of transmission mechanism for that effect to take place. Um, so, you know, that's really, I thought that, you know, that's worth kind of keeping in perspective in terms of all the, um, all the kind of hullabaloo over the um, union victory over Amazon in, you know, kind of one, uh, one Amazon unit. The other aspect which he finishes on and is really good is to understand and he says that this is a kind of a significant shift in the way people are thinking about it is to understand um, the question of distribution, not only in terms of income and the fact that corporate, you know, the wealthy and the corporations have captured so much income relative to labor, but also in terms of a distribution of power of collective and institutional bargain, bargaining power. And so inflation is not only a question of um, where income goes, but also who has the capacity to re, you know, kind of distribute the costs of inflation through their institutional presence in the economy. And obviously without collective labor, without labor organizations, um, workers of necessity bear the brunt. Yeah. I mean, I think the, probably the most, or one of the most useful bits of the, the whole article, which, and I, I think it's asking the right question here, what, what is driving inflation what's causing it is the is the chart that he starts with it's, it's really striking that basically you know to be crude about the analysis inflation today is being driven by capital and not labor so the yeah so to, yeah i mean it's like normal and recent contributions to growth in unit prices in the non-financial corporate sector is the name of the uh the chart which is you know quite um quite a uh, catchy title but basically he's just you know com compare 1979 to 2019 with you know 2020 to 2021 and in that earlier period it was 11 percent corporate prof profits contribution to this kind of increase in unit prices and now it's 54 percent you know this i guess the, this just reflects the predominance of capital over labor and the other other on the other hand Previously in that, that earlier period, it was 62% of this increase in cost was driven by unit labor costs, i.e. labor's collective bargaining power, and now it's 8%. So it's just like, you can just, I just think it so, it's so strikingly illustrates, you know, the what what's, what's changed in the balance of capital and labor between these two periods. It's also kind of useful. I mean, it doesn't tell the whole story of all the economies in the world and even the American economy, which is what it's, what it's kind of focused on, but non-labor input costs so this idea that you know inflation is being driven by increased energy costs you know it's all the all the damn russians fault um well no not really it's still you know in the same order of magnitude so it's like it was about a quarter so it's like 27 percent previously and now it's 
38%. So, you know, there is a greater contribution um, slightly of non-labor input costs, but really it's now <laughs> corporate profits and not uh, labor, which is the contribution to, to inflation. Yeah, that's, and I think yeah, that's... The, sorry, George, go on. No, I just think that's like the... Um, just kind of actually asking where's where's inflation coming from and actually trying to work out what is causing the increase in costs. I think that's an incredibly useful starting point and you can you know you can draw a lot of important political conclusions um, from that. I mean that's the the other element that comes across really strongly is as you've been saying George the they basically you know as far as the data that Adam presents here indicates corporations basically use the opportunity of COVID and lockdown to you know kind of just you know make an enormous grab for loot essentially and it's the um overhang of that resource grab that we're still seeing in terms of the contribution of um, corporate profits to the spike in inflation yeah and the, and the huge funds the covid relief funds which then sloshed around into the economy and but especially into the kind of financial sector. Um, but there, there's some other elements here um, and some more kind of political historical ones which are worth drawing uh, drawing upon to kind of explain the situation more broadly. A lot of Adam Tuza's work has been recently about the way that central banks have become effectively the the executive, uh, the political executive have become, and not, you know, become even sovereign, the sovereign power. Um, they succeeded in beating inflation in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, that was the neoliberal revolution that was, you know, beginning with the Volcker shock in 79. Um, and they then ruled over this land that they had conquered. Effectively, it broke the back of unions, it broke the back of labor. Uh, and central banks were able to basically, you know, as globalization kept expanding, uh, and that there were cheaper sources of input and resources and production elsewhere, um, that they could just continue to fine tune the economy by twiddling the knobs of interest price, interest rates. And now suddenly, um, what has happened with this inflation is that, as Adam Dews puts it, it challenges the autonomy of technocrats in the basic sense that it challenges their grip on the main levers of the economy. Whatever distributional outcome these policymakers prefer, and their preference may be more or less progressive, it challenges their control and their ability to pursue what they believe to be optimal outcomes. And that becomes even more the case, much more the case, if there actually is a wage price spiral, because it means that... Um, the central bankers, you know, can't effectively do anything about workers pushing and succeeding in achieving uh, higher wages. Um, again, that isn't something that's happening right now, but I think it's important that Tews leaves this possibility open rather than coming to a sort of um, necessarily downbeat conclusion where, you know, well, the workers have no power, wage prices will keep increasing. And so, you know, what will deliver us from this? Nothing. It's just doom. Um, it's not impossible, well, you know. Hmm. It's it's not impossible. Isn't that... isn't isn't, isn't the logic on. of his argument though that you're not going to have a wage price spiral because that because the ability to push wages up is dependent on labor's you know collective bargaining power, which is w way less than it than it was in the yeah, in the seventies. So you know, but it might begin somewhere, right? So it, I think yeah, I mean, of course it could, but I, I guess the you know the situation at the moment is that, or at least sort of my understanding is that we have instead of the kind of the voice put, you know, not to, to overuse that, that um, kind of trilogy, but instead of the, the voice of labor kind of negotiating, pushing up wages, instead we have exits. So people 
participating in the great resignation um if i i'm not sure how much i'm not sure how much the great resignation is still going on by the way i think there's been some data suggesting that um it might have been overstated but in any case i I think the the point is you know uh, unless you want to come to a conclusion which is um pretty deterministic and doomly which is that you know there aren't there's low trade union density therefore workers cannot and will not ever gain wage increases and so you know that's it we're fucked um the, you know that changes in material conditions might prompt some sort of response right and part of that might be for example the tightening of labor markets um which partly through the exit of workers and other factors that it might lead workers to feel, hang on, we might actually have some leverage here to push for higher wages. But this is, so that this might is be my a thing. Point. Or the fact, or the fact simply of rising, rapidly rising prices suddenly leads people to go, wait, we need, you know, we need to do something about wages and workers start clubbing together and finding solutions. Yeah, for that. but I mean, it could be, you know, I mean, you could be talking about the effect lasting years, you know, like, it's not like, um, even if people see these things and feel them and, you know, that their responses are the way you describe, Alex, it's still, you know, I mean, you might, it might be years before you see those kinds of um, the effects of people feeling motivated to organize collectively. Of course, of course, and they might not do anything and it might be bad and it might be the doomly scenario, right? And, but, you know, as, all I'm, all I, all I'm, I'm not sure it's a... I'm not sure it's a doomly I, well, scenario. Well, doomly like, isn't where... a word, so let's not use it for a start. <laughs> and secondly, it sounds I mean, good you know, though. Inflation it might be a word. Inflation might peter out by the time that these kinds of collective organizing effects are felt as well. I mean, that is true. There is there has been some suggestion that the supply chain disruptions, which was the initial kind of spark behind a lot of the the kind of recent inflationary pressure, will abate once you know, China ends its crazy COVID zero lockdowns, they go back to work, the supply chains are reconstructed, the uh, massive uh, semiconductor chip shortage, uh, which is a big part of why, you know, cars are super expensive and various other kind of industrial processes are, are very expensive. If that comes back kind of online, as it were, back to how it was pre-COVID, then um, some of that inflationary pressure will subside, uh, even if energy prices will remain high. And that probably seems set to be the case for a little while, at, at least. Um, well, but I in- mean, the, the, the alternative is that the increased costs of various things get borne by people not having increased wages. Like that's how it, you know, that's how it dissipates. That's, you know, and that's, and that's certainly going to be the case, you know, for the next 18 well, it, months or so. It requires a justification. It requires an, you know, um, an, a kind of legitimation and a, an explanation as to why we should have a, you know, a worse standard of living. I mean, I but did. Those, I, those explanations are already made, George, right? I mean, you blame the Russians and you blame, you know, and the necessity of climate adaptation. So the kind of ideological narratives for that are already there. And unless some of the, you know, I mean, unless some of this kind of discussion filters down more into public debate in terms of actual breakdowns of contribution to inflation, then, you know, I think those narratives will probably, um, they will carry the day. I'm I'm sure they, I'm sure they'll um, be used. Yeah. I mean, this is what we have been seeing. It's just interesting that we are, and one of the articles that we're going to discuss in just a bit is um, kind of a little bit about this, but, you know, we're not used to dealing with, at least certainly in, um, you know, the kind of core richest economies, uh, not used to dealing with inflation, with rapid rises in prices. It's been a very long time. Um, so these are this is a kind of very new situation. So we don't know how people kind of exactly will react to that. As we know, yeah, 
workers are bearing the brunt of that. Um, we've kind of discussed a little bit around the edges of it, and kind of I still would like us to have a, an episode on this more specifically, because one of the other kind of uh, responses from below to rising prices cannot just be labor organizing and uh, bargaining for higher wages, but also um, effectively, I don't want to put it as, you know, food riots, because it's not doesn't necessarily take that form, but various forms of sort of, let's say, consumer activism, which is to say, activism that isn't consumer that, activism. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> Well, because no, because it's not, instead of labor activism, it's consumer activism, right? So it's not something that takes place in the realm of production, which is to say, you know, pushing for higher wages at work, but pushing for lower prices in the marketplace, right? So it's it's a, a political activity oriented around the realm in, in the sphere of consumption, and you know that can take various forms. It can be demands for the central government to subsidize prices of energy and other kind of key inputs um, or key, you know, key consumer goods. Um, it can be, take the form of just general riots or whatever else. And so that, I mean, it'll just be interesting if people's frustration and indeed in growing desperation um, finds political outlets, which might not necessarily be ones of, for example, labor organizing, but, um, you know, other outlets. Um, so I, anyway, yeah. that's just something that which is worth kind I mean of um, keeping an eye out for. Well, indeed, but also like, you know, re-electing Trump. I mean, if Biden, as the next, you know, the next piece we'll discuss and disindicate some of this, if the Biden administration gets the blame, there'll be other kind of political outlets sure. as well. But that's, yeah, but, you know, that's just turning up to the poll once, which, um, you know, I'm, I'm also kind of speculating about the possibility of something bigger than that. Well, just on, on, on this this point, I guess the one of the useful things about the um, about this article, I think, is that it it sort of it counterposes our current period to that 1979-2019 period of of like very low inflation, and it makes me think that there's a kind of like are we in the first inflation like first big inflationary period since the defeat of organized labor? Like, is it, is this going to kind of be um, a situation that we haven't encountered before? Basically, isn't um, it? yeah. So yeah, and so therefore, like. <clears throat> the the consequences of that are, are you know not completely clear from the past but i do think the you know what you said about consumer uh, politicization of consumption and the costs of of particularly like essentials that could be one way that it that it happens i think i think twos leaves it kind of open or a bit hopeful that cites the ecb's elizabeth schnabel saying that the bargaining power of organized labor is arguably growing it's like, well, that's, you know, it feels like that's a bit too, too easy at this point in time, just to say, yeah. well, you know, we're going to, it, it's, it's going to be all right. I think, you know, you don't want to be doomly. I actually maybe I'll kind of, no, don't you know, come, come back to your point, Alex, that it's don't too use that word. Doomly. What's wrong with doomly? I, th I think the, um, I think what, what is kind of in I, what you know these people you know the bank of international settlements the people who write these working papers let alone the economic you know the european central bank they're not people who are particularly you know motivated to see a uh, you know uh, a return of organized labor or a strengthened organized labor i think when they talk like this um and they talk about the possibility of you know so in the language of the authors of one of the working papers Potential pressure to reinstate, reinstate institutional structures that made economies more prone to wage price spirals in the past, right? 
um, they're really talking about ways of legitimizing themselves, right? You know, for the same reason that Biden met the Amazon labor organizer, Chris Smalls in the White House, mm. you know, and when the ECB say, oh, you know, like the prospects for, um, you know, kind of uh, labor might benefit from a tighter labor market and that will have good distributional consequences. Um, you know, they're looking for ways to kind of soften the blow to yeah. shape people's expectations. And they don't really feel concerned because they know it will be decades before there's any kind of, before there's, you know, any kind of independent um, labor organization that would be meaningfully challenging to them. So they make these noises, they're kind of, they act as if they can kind of claim the prospect of strengthened labor as something which no, is yeah, of course it's a, beneficial. It's a it's a little percentage. It's a little finger on the scale, you know, which they're suggesting to government. Yeah, that, exactly. Know, is, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's all, I mean, it's again, you know, it's just kind of hot air essentially when they uh, talk about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'm just, I'm not arguing for us to be sunny optimists. I'm just saying we shouldn't be uh, gloomy or deterministic. Um, anyway, let's move on to the next piece because I think it flows on quite nicely from this. Yeah, so this is a piece from Compact Magazine, which is called Inflation is No Accident. It's from the 27th of April by Christopher Caldwell. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think this is a, a good, the, the title already gives you a, a bit of an insight into what the, the key argument is going to be, which is essentially that um, inflation is a, is, a, is a policy, is a policy that can sometimes has to be disavowed, but it's a, a deliberate, um, uh, you know, political economic outcome that is sometimes sought. So at the, the start of the article, um, Caldwell points out that the, uh, and I, I just wanted to read this little quote, the macroeconomic hotshots of the Biden administration with their academic credentials and long executive branch resumes have presided over a deterioration of macroeconomic competence relative to the Trump administration's business meatballs. I like the idea of the, the, the Trump in business meatball. I think that's 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 quite an evocative um, phrase for the kind of the the, the Trump approach to uh, to the economy. Um, but yeah, so the, the the basic kind of starting point of this article is like, yeah, I mean, what explains this? What? How could it be that that all of the the big brains of the Biden administration of are messing up the economy when all those Trump idiots were able to get it right? Um, and he kind of draws on on two sociologists, um, Hirsch and, and Goldthorpe. Um, from from Warwick and Oxford, and their basic their central claim is that inflation it's a very, is very a very old book. I mean, incidentally, so it's from the nineteen seventies. That book, yeah. I mean, he's he's done his research. I mean, clearly to to find this this text, which I'd I'd never heard of. No, um, I, I'd heard of it. I think it I think it is kind of like it discusses a fairly kind of important inflation text, okay. which people might be rediscovering now. Actually, funnily funnily enough. Well, that's actually, I guess, a wider point in this is like going back to all of the justifications or the the, the moral language around inflation, particularly in the in the UK, the three day weeks and all this kind of like the economic catastrophe of like, you know, this is what happens when you have labor unions too strong. But anyway, so the, the basic and John Goldthorpe, who's a sociologist associated with the Goldthorpe schema of of class. So, you know, a, a kind of an empirical sociologist. Anyway, their basic idea is inflation is seldom an error it's usually a policy if an unavowed one so they kind of react against this this friedmanite idea that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon so you just simply cut the money supply 
And so Goldthorpe and Hirsch say, well, this is a bit facile, basically. So the question has to be, why have political forces chosen to flood the economy with money supply? Previously, trade unions could be blamed. You know, this is, they're the, you know, the, the stuck in the past, not willing to modernize, like, you know, we need to clamp down on them. But today it's a bit less clear because you don't have that. So there's a now a political question of who are you going to blame? You can't blame capital, really, if you're um, the part of the ruling class, you know, you, and the twos article shows that this is where the source is, the origin of inflation is at the, at the point in time, at this point in time. So what do you do? Instead, you have to blame, you know, some other factor. But anyway, the reason why I wanted to choose this, I guess, is just because it kind of starts to get at what are the, you know, what are the different options or kind of <clears throat> reasons why inflation could be chosen as a as a political strategy you know what are the um reasons why you might say well this is yeah i mean the, the central claim inflation is seldom an error it's usually a policy and i think that is that kind of cuts against the the prevailing common sense which is that inflation is a is a failure like it's like it's just a lack of economic competence so yeah that's so why I've, i wanted to stress that I, one. I, have, I have a question so about your interpretation of, of the of the piece because i, I didn't read it as necessarily saying that pol that inflation was chosen as a policy more just that or as a deliberate strategy as you put it but rather just that inflation always involves political choices so that you know you, you it's not just something that you one can wash i think he makes it of. pretty clear that it is a strategy or it's a deliberate policy in this case the way i understood what he's arguing is that it was so the consensus among the kind of um, Obama Nords and among the kind of liberal technocrats was that the stimulus package under the Obama administration was insufficient. And now they're overcompensating um, with the Biden administration's pumping up the economy, but also that it's inflated by the racial ID, um, you know, the kind of agenda of racial justice that the Democrats have also um, put forward. And so this means that it's... A, kind of um, excessive, but also in a context in which when the economy was already recovering from COVID, it's turned like, a, you know, it kind of set the economy on fire, I think, in the words of Lawrence Summers. Sure, I, so I, it I was a deliberate I, choice. I mean, I, I think I, that's I, his no, I get that a deliberate choice, but the kind of runaway inflation from that, I mean, I don't know if it's quite runaway at this stage, but anyway, the, 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 the inflation that ensues from that is that an unintended consequence of there of the Biden administration's attempt to go really big, right? And like, okay, were they yeah. stupid Fair. or did they choose to ha create this inflation? I think I don't think it's, yeah, it's the good, latter. It's a good point. No, I mean, I, I suppose yeah, that's true. I I mean, I, I don't think he he draws the implication out fully in the article, but I think the implication is that yeah, they know what they're doing. Like, you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist too much about it, but like, you like the unintended consequences. Like you, you could actually, maybe I'm going to contradict myself. I guess economists are the one kind of discipline that you could, you could say that 99% of them are wrong all the time because they're stupid. Um, but actually probably a more plausible explanation is that they, they do know what the consequences are going to be. Unintended consequences are not unexpected. Um, they're just ones you can disavow. So, you know, that there is a, if you were in a situation, if if you were to be in a situation of knowing that Labour's uh, collective bargaining power was was very low, then is inflation necessarily such a bad thing? Or could you could you see a situation where the costs of this are passed disproportionately onto 
um, well, working people. It, 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 I inflation, know. I mean, inflation isn't great if you hold assets, if you hold debt, especially, right? Because inflation, especially if it's denominated in your own currency, and in this case, in the US, it's in dollars and it will be, it's not great to have inflation because it means that the debt that you hold is worth less and less as you go forward. So I'm not sure that those people would necessarily want to inflate that away. So I, that, that's, I don't understand the rationale for wanting inflation, right? I mean, wanting a bit of inflation as a consequence or as a factor tied to no, I mean, I think you're right. Growth, Alex. He leaves it. He doesn't make growth. It's, it's fine. But one yeah, day- but the point is, no, you're right. I mean, you're right. Okay. So like he doesn't, you know, the idea that it's inflation itself, that's the deliberate policy. He doesn't make clear what the rationale for that would be. Um, and it does seem to me like it's more likely that they, you know, perhaps underestimated its effects um, and that they were looking for something else. Right. Um, but that inflation has come as part of it and they were willing to bear, you know, they're willing to bear the kind of liberal technocrats in the Biden administration are willing to bear those costs. Um, so but again, it's bit it's left kind of, uh, you know, it's left kind of a bit um, obscure. So the other element, I mean, I think, you know, the other thing which is important and which he echoes too is, is he shows kind of quite systematically that you can't the inflation kind of was very clearly um, beginning before uh, the shock of the Ukraine war and before energy prices really started rising. And so, again, he kind of reinforces the point that Tews makes that in terms of looking at the facts, you can't really attribute the um, surge in inflation to the Ukraine war. No, at least not at the no. moment. Though, though there was the supply chain shock, the supply shocks because of COVID, which um, came before the yeah, energy price taking, shocks. I mean, so. But taking, you know, he takes that into account in terms of beginning at the Biden administration and then where we are now and that it's already, you know, it was already being propelled prior to that. The I mean, the thing I wanted to um, the other element I wanted to mention, which I thought this isn't his point, but he takes it from the classic uh, 1970s book, which incidentally, I looked up on Amazon and speaking of inflation, it's one hundred and four pounds. <laughs> so but how, um, but how much was it in the 1970s? Gen, it could have been yeah, probably quite, probably quite probably quite less. But yes, we have LibGen, unfortunately, but, you know, kind of. Uh, Taking things off the internet, you can't do that with um, with just with everything that you can do with books. No, and, and you anyway, shouldn't do that with the end of the end of history. Um, no, absolutely one, but you not. You should definitely buy. Um, <laughs> but that aside, the the point he makes, which is that, um, or the point they make, which I think is, um, you know, and I never thought of this, but it's a fascinating point that inflation of the 1970s indicates a purely capital capitalist economy because it was something that was openly battled over by workers and employers, whereas previously the costs of inflation could be camouflaged by, as they put it, kind of traditional, the traditional habit, the habits of deference that were expected in a traditional society, that there were ideological resources through which you could camouflage and cushion the effects of inflation through um, the, you know, the implication that everyone um, was uh, involved in some kind of collect, you know, was collectively bound up in some way, and so with the 1970s, you get kind of open these sharp and brutal conflicts of interest that are openly expressed in economic terms over who is, you know, how is the burden, how is the cost going to be distributed, and you know, I thought that was that was really interesting because he kind of in, he. Um, not only for its own insight, but that he doesn't really kind of apply it to the contemporary period either. 
you know, because it seems like at the moment they're experimenting, and this is a point that Malcolm Chayuni made in Compact separately, they're experimenting with ways, with ideological justifications to get citizens to bear the cost of increased standards of living. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, there is no lower kind standards of ready of living. aid. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, with the, uh, lower standards of living, increased cost of living, but there is really no ready-made kind of ideological justification. Or at least not one that um, you know they need to kind of find it and develop it and impose it. Yeah. And so anyway, I mean, I thought it was you know it's kind of a it was a fascinating point, and he indicates inflation really is about you know like it uh, speaks to a deficit of legitimacy, rather than really being about you know kind of unit costs of this or that or what contribution of whatever goes into the unit cost or the you know impact on grain prices of Ukrainian ports being shut down or whatever. It's really about legitimacy. And I thought that kind of willingness to dissolve it into politics, I think, is, um, you know, is a really important insight to bear in mind in all of these discussions. Yeah, I thought that was very good, the the fact that he centered politics. Um, I mean, I'm not entirely convinced by his argument at the beginning of kind of isolating the U.S. and going, aha, it was Biden's stimulus what done it, because um, inflation in the U.K. is also very high and it's higher than in the Eurozone. And that and you don't have exactly yeah, the same he's stimulus just, in the U.S. No, so. that, but he's, he's not. But he's not. All he's saying is that in America, in the context of the American economy, you had powerful drivers of inflation that were already present and visible prior to the um prior to the shock of the ukraine war no i I think that part is absolutely right about centering politics about centering distributional questions and indeed legitimacy uh in that i don't i'm not entirely sure i find it convincing um this argument about deference right because the idea is that in the 70s workers are militant and uh because states can't say no because they can't break their promises to workers in terms of provide trying to provide full employment trying to provide uh, ever increasing living standards uh, they effectively you know accede to those demands while also trying to uh, preserve profits so they try to give everybody everything both the cap- capital and labor what they want uh, and then you get this wage price spiral um, and that's because the you know supposedly a, a lack of legitimacy I'm not entirely sure about that but l- let's go with that for now supposedly then what in the 50s and 60s workers were deferential and um didn't could accept higher inflation and you know didn't weren't militant as a response i don't entirely buy that i I, yeah but we look i mean we're talking at kind of you know some levels removed from the original argument so um i mean i understood it more and i didn't understand it as like the 50s and 60s so much as perhaps earlier you know kind of the first part of the 20th century maybe the late 19th century Mm. um so i mean but you know i mean there's no way to know without but those were also moments of, of momentous labor struggles though i suppose there wasn't the kind of forms of you know, you sectoral had, bargaining and so on that and well indeed that you have in the post-war and you period still, and you had you know kind of the understanding perhaps was um you know obscured in all sorts of different ways i mean you had the you know the bimetallism which was an important part of populism in the late 19th century u.s politics and what have you um you know so i mean uh Obviously, I just I thought it was an interesting point, you know, that the kind of 
the consciousness of a pure distributional conflict between different economic interest groups, according to them, reaches its peak. I mean, I've not read the original text. I thought it was interesting, but it also connects very clearly to the point about legitimacy, right, and distribution. The question of um, the distributional effects of inflation is one that is always political. It's not simply economic. It's how can you just, can you force and can you legitimate and can you justify who is going to carry the costs? Right. So and I think that is the you know, that's the important point in um, in his rendering of this argument. Yeah. Um, the precise kind of detail of how they make the point. We, you know, we don't know without going to the book. Yeah, I think it makes sense. The whole the whole story that the so the um, the 70s or seven, inflation in the 70s. I, I just want to read out this this quote because I think it's I think it is useful for Hershen Gold thought. And this is from Caldwell's article for Hershen Gold thought the 70s inflation reflected the transition from a traditional to purely capitalist society old habits of deference which had provided the normative camouflage for the status quo no longer bound working men laborers were now ready to do battle against ownership the conflicts were hard to resolve because the two sides were arguing from irreconcilable basis legitimacy the insurgents were too strong to resist but the incumbents were too strong to expropriate inflation allowed each side to leave the bargaining table claiming and for a while even believing that it, it had done better than it actually had inflation was as goldthorpe wrote the monetary expression the monetary expression of distributional conflict and i think if you take that kind of idea that it's an expression of of some other conflict this you know this makes sense because this period of of inflation was ended by a decisive victory of one side over the other um of, of capital over labor and maybe today's inflation is the monetary expression of a distributional conflict i.e the what would happen with covid and who's going to bear the consequences of that Indeed, which is yeah. very one-sided and i think i mean you know it's a great point about the kind of the um the stasis of the 70s as well you know the um the organized working class was too powerful at least in the 70s to dislodge and the capitalists and the workers on the on the hand were too weak to um, expropriate the capitalists and so inflation was the result in effect of that um, yeah. stalemate I, I guess I, I guess my my sorry, go on, Alex. Well, I I just wanted to address the final claim made in this, which is for me the kind of weakest one, because he tries to draw an analogy between the industrial citizenship of the post-war period, which is that which was provided by trade unions above all, and what today he calls the sort of. Uh, ethnic racial gender citizenship of today, which is also a sort of secondary citizen, secondary um, system, um, you know, which you can resume as wokeness, and that it was the demands of wokeness, especially during the 2020 riot after George Floyd's murder, that um, that led to Biden responding with this huge stimulus. Um, and he tries to uh, convince us of this by looking at the ways that that stimulus, the um, ARPA package was distributed. And a lot of it was about giving it to, um, you know, black owned businesses or helping minorities reduce the racial wealth gap and so on. Um, I mean, I have no doubt that there was, that was a, element of ideological legitimation in, in kind of doing this reduce the racial wealth gap element to some to some of the um, stimulus package and i also obviously think a lot of that's kind of ridiculous but i don't entirely buy the argument in in two levels one i don't buy the analogy between industrial citizenship and the kind of wokeness stuff because they're completely different orders of strength and composition and everything else i don't think you can um, compare them at all not least because 
though because wokeness doesn't have any collective organizations um other than what are you talking about other than other than being institutionalized within it's the democratic the it's, power it's, that is exactly it right well, it's well, the but, democratic but party but that's not a collective institution and it's, it's a, a whole, cartel you know, party so NGOs it's you know. and no but there's ngos there's universities yeah there's I, trade unions themselves have bought in the leadership have totally bought into all the woke crap so it is. I mean, it is embedded in institutions. But, but, but it's but, but that's what I mean. It's completely different to trade unions, which are relatively autonomous. Yeah, but civil it is embedded and institutionalized. It's not just flim flam. It's not just the flim flam on social um, media. I know it's not just flim flam on social media. I understand that it's institutionalized, but it's precisely the opposite because it's institutionalized. Whereas unions, however institutionalized AF, AFL CIO is. Uh, and was it's not of the same order as as these other things, right? Um, because they're okay, still somewhat I mean, bottom I, up, right? It's where everything's top down. So I think, I mean, I think you're right. It was the weakest part of the argument where he suggests, you know, kind of he kind of indicates or he wave, you know, kind of does some hand waving about the fact that um, it was, you know, that this will that this was kind of a bung to um to various kind of minority groups as a way of and it was as a way and this is what's fed into inflation and he doesn't really kind of you know demonstrate that at the same level of um concrete detail that he makes other claims in the piece so i mean you know i'd agree with that but, yeah I, ju I just find um, it it's like it's a he tried to get a jab in at wokeness which you know fine go ahead but um i, it, I don't think it really sits to the said, argument you know that said i mean i think the parallel is correct i think you know that is kind of the the um that kind of model of citizenship whereas before your membership you know being blue collar um being a blue collar union uh, card carrying union member i think would have given you kind of a compliment to your um legal kind of citizenship of the american republic and that that is now substituted effectively by wokeness so, so i think I, it is kind of i think it is legitimate to talk about it in um, in parallel terms, I, without, I'm not sure about that because away. I didn't. Let me finish the read. point. Let me finish the point without it take without taking away from the point that obviously being a member of a union is different from valorizing your particular kind of ethnic background and sexuality and what have you on your social media profile. But the nonetheless, it matters. And I think his point about the fact that the bunk, you know, that this enormous kind of um, payoff essentially to democratic voters all the different kind of coalitions of democratic voters is a way is how it the how the Biden administration has justified this enormous stimulus and that it effectively is a woke justification for stimulus I think I accept that so thank you for finishing that point which did seem to be just a repetition of what you'd, you'd previously said but did sometimes I do it for your benefit George because so... it's important for you to get it I don't think that I read the article in the same way. I think it was basic. My understanding was that he was saying, like, what was the what was the basis of distributing distributional conflict in the seventies, capital versus labor, sort of. What's the what's the basis for distri distributional conflict today? It's kind of you know wokeness, and he says things like whatever wokeness has been, it has involved keeping two sets of books. One man's reparations is another man's four hundred one k, and it's like. Okay, well, so so this is his this is his proposition, and this and I think if you do accept that, then the conclusion which he says we don't have the resources to leave both sides feeling fairly treated, so we promise money that we don't have. That's what inflation is. I mean, I think that is an interesting like. So the, the idea, I mean, you're kind of reading from the American example to the whole of the world that it's like the distributional conflicts or that that kind of um, 
that lens means that this you promise money to everybody and bungs if, if you want to put it that way and that's what leads to inflation but it certainly is an interesting idea that the conflict over resources on the basis of class has been replaced by on the basis of um ethnicity i think that's a that's but that I, would be but, my yeah. conclusion or but, the, my reading of his conclusion but i think the thing is is that with even with however you know obviously wokeness is hugely institutionalized in the u.s through affirmative action policies non-discrimination and various sort of litigiousness around that um there's um the i the the it's not like you can just fund wokeness in the same way right it's what are like you talking about you can they money, do it not, all the time but, but not in the but not in the way not through the not through the, the what we, what is actually being discussed here through the arpa um plan in that kind of targeted way um in a way that would lead to inflation i think you know that's the, that's the bit which i don't entirely... yeah okay no but we agree so we said you know I, th- I mean i agree with you on that it's the weakest part but the fact that this is, you know, that it's and, a bung to the Democratic, and, and not, and, sorry, vote, to Democratic and, and not, voters. Sure, sure. But it, the, 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 the fact is, is that there, you know, especially, you know, that it's more the actually my, my issue is more not so much with the question about inflation, but with the issue about citizenship, because I don't buy the kind of woke citizenship element precisely because many, most people don't buy into it. Right. So it doesn't really work if if it if it's very um, like literally minoritarian, obviously, but in the sense that, you know, you see many minorities uh, gradually voting more for the Republicans, for example. So I just don't you know, I, I don't think it works as an argument if no one else is buying it. That you know, enough people buy it is the point. Right. I mean, and it's the basis of Biden's rule. Um, so, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like uh, everyone does, but I mean, enough people buy into it. And it's certainly the way in which the Democrats kind of see themselves and how they justify their That's rule. how they justify themselves. I'm, I just don't know how much it works. Anyway, let's move on to the to the final piece. Phil. Yeah. So this piece is um, by Ben Marlow, who's the chief city commentator for the UK's uh, Daily Telegraph. Uh, published on the 19th of May, and it the title is Britain is Drifting Towards Economic Oblivion. And as it's a, I mean, as you you know, as the title indicates, it's this it's a stinging polemic, essentially, against uh, the record of the current government. Um, and it draws it out very well generationally because it indicates that essentially, I mean, you know, the people who are in charge now are have never experienced inflation. The last time, and he, you know, he opens up by indicating, you know, the last time that there was inflation in Britain, at least at this scale, it was the time of the Falklands War. Prince William, the, um, the you know, the heir to the throne, but one was born, and E.T. was um, the highest-grossing film of all time um, at that point, right? So, I mean, it's the point is, it's a very long time ago. It's um, there's a whole genera- a, a generation of leaders simply have no experience of dealing with economic problems of this kind and of this magnitude. Um, and this is comes across in their complete incompetence. Um, so what's striking about it is that it is such a blistering attack on Tory government, um, given how important kind of the record of supposed economic competence is to the Tories, um, and also just the sheer kind of lack of um, the fact that the compared to kind of previous Tory governments, particularly of the 1980s, how... Um, simple they are you know i mean they're so i mean not only are they inexperienced but also just utterly kind of adrift 
And so it's the kind of denunciation of government incompetence that you would, you know, normally not find on, you know, it's a conservative paper uh, attacking a conservative government and particularly one that it's supported on other questions such as Brexit. And so to see it kind of lambasting the government for um, incompetence is really telling. The other element of it that I think is also he makes the point that, you know, so there's lots of idiot government ministers at the moment who are saying things like, oh, you know, people who are struggling with the cost of living, they just need to learn how to cook better or, you know, find a new recipe book or, um, you know, I don't know, like um, do kind like of shop, uh, shop value, shop from the value range job or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, there's like yeah. shop from the value range so, that you know, people I mean, aren't already even struggling to afford that, like. Yeah, and so this Waitrose is essential. Waitrose so the, essential caviar. This is, and so these kinds of statements by ministers have been criticised by the left for showing you know the government is out of touch; they don't understand ordinary life. But he's saying what they're really indicating is just how pathetic and desperate they are. They don't have any actual policy capacity, and they don't have any policy answers. And so the one of the reasons, I mean, partly it's the sheer kind of the the fury of the piece is part of the reason I chose it because I think it's an intri- kind of a straw in the wind in terms of the current status of the Tory government with respect to its base in Britain. But the other element of it, I thought it was a good contrast with um, Chris Caldwell's compact piece is because, I mean, in the Biden administration, you have a tremendous concentration of kind of technocratic expertise, Ivy Leaguery, um, Obama Norts, who kind of cut their teeth and so have ex- institutional and political experience. It's the antidote to the Trumpian kind of lack of um, policy kind of capacity. And so, and, you know, so there was, he makes that point that they're struggling over there. And the contrast with the Tory government is really striking. Um, there is simply, you know, there is not, they have nothing at all, kind of in terms of institutional levers, in terms of capacity, he makes, they're all kind of, you know, rough, they're all in the same place. So Rishi Sunak, who's the British Chancellor, um, the guy who's head of the Treasury um, over here, you know, he's kind of um, just adrift. And not only, and in addition to being adrift, his political authority has been completely shredded by an internal kind of um, factional dispute with Johnson supporters. And so, at the same time as there's no kind of institutional or policy capacity, there's no alternative within the Tory party to Johnson either. You know, so uh, Boris Johnson remains in, in the saddle by default, um, but the government is adrift. And so, you know, it's a grim, oh, one might even say doomly prognosis. Mm. Um, so. I found it, um, well, two things interesting about the piece. I'll, I'll, one is the, indeed, the generational thing, which I kind of already hinted at. But while kind of the wider public doesn't have experience of inflation unless you happen to be um, relatively old. Um, you know, people have an experience in their working lives. Um, so it, just to underscore, I guess, what kind of new terrain we're actually in. And we haven't faced inflation with this, with the general configuration of society um, being so different as it is uh, from the 1970s. So I think that's really interesting. The other, which really uh, shocked me reading it was, um, the fact that, and this is not just central government, but even the governor of the Bank of England says we are helpless to tackle the inflationary crisis. Um, that's 
remarkable for a number of reasons. One, because it, yeah. it seeks to be like, it seems to be like just, a, a, you know, a, a major official of, a, of the most important um, public institution in Britain, um, basically saying, I, I can't help you, right? So that's that's kind of the, the kind of neoliberal washing your hands of responsibility for government is there. But the other, but what makes it even more remarkable is the fact is what I was saying at the very beginning of this, that central banks have ruled unchallenged they have been the sovereign entity and yet now they're saying they're helpless and that's weird because they have always been the guys like no we've we've got our hands on the levers of the economy we've got everything under control let us get on with it don't politically interfere we're independent let us get on with it and now they're saying they're helpless and i i'm trying to unpick exactly what is behind that whether it reflects the fact that they have lost relative influence um over the economy or whether there's something ideological going on there it's a bit of both, I think. I mean, I think with the central banks are under tremendous pressure. So they've been thrust into the limelight, you know, um, since the, I mean, since the era of quantitative easing started. And they're, you know, the roles that they've played in terms of stimulating the economy during Corona, lockdown, what have you. Um, the fact that they've been household names throughout the neoliberal era, from Alan Greenspan to Ben Bernanke, Mervyn King, to a lesser extent over here uh, in the I'm UK. not sure every household, I mean... Ah, oh, George, you're right. Mervyn yes, King? not in your, he, not in your, everyone... not in your ignorant kind of household where I don't know you don't read the papers, whatever. But the point is, you know, what's a newspaper? The point is right that they're under pressure, um, and so they're kind of trying, they're struggling to find new ways to legitimate the role into which they've been thrust. They're kind of they're the nobody is i mean nobody who's taken seriously is being uh, is calling for central bank independence to be revoked um but at the same time they're expected to kind of uh, retool the economy in ways that are actually beyond their capacity because you know ultimately they only deal with monetary policy and you have governments that are still unable or unwilling to deal with um you know with the fiscal side of things and so in that context they're floundering right and i think that's what comes across in in um, Andrew Bailey's kind of uh, desperate pleading, but I mean, I think that the, the central point of the, the of the article, I mean, you called it a sting, a stinging polemic, um, I, I believe, and it's yeah, I mean, it's, I think it falls foul of the of what the the Caldwell piece kind of identifies of like saying that this is an error, that this is like if only we just didn't have such idiotic moronic politicians, then it would be fine. I mean. If if it, if they weren't so low quality um, and you know incompetent, then you know we wouldn't have this this situation. But I think this this kind of unimpressiveness, which Marlowe identifies and sort of sees in personal terms, you could you could have another explanation for this, which is a bit more a bit more structural. And it's kind of you know similarly to why the Tory and he he does note this point why the Tories are blowing Brexit. Um, it's ultimately that they have. You know they have been socialized and they have been you know brought up in this kind of member state post-political governing mode so they don't yeah. have the tools yeah. they don't look to the sources of legitimacy outside of the eu so when there is this you know economic political problem um they're just like they don't have any recourse they have no, they have no place to hide now and so they're, they're they don't have that um mm -hmm. 
you know, the political class as a whole, it's not just the Tories, it's not just bad Boris and any brave Rishi Sunak standing against him, which is, is the frame of analysis. It's, you know, it's, it's a structural rot, not based in the, the personal deficiencies of, of our, our current kind of conservative yeah, government, no, although would... those, are, those are, you know, very apparent. I would just to qualify something you said. I mean, when I think when Caldwell says inflation is not an accident, I think what he means is it's not just kind of a byproduct of um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, or kind of, you know, the excess of, uh, of a government policy. So he's not saying that there, he's saying that these are deeply, he said, I mean, I think he's conceding that they're a deeply impressive bunch in terms of credentials, the people in the White House, but they're still unable to do things, you know, to meaningfully kind of um, control these uh, the aspects of the economy that they um, claim that they're able to um, whereas here I think you know the point is more different it's like you say I mean he doesn't quite point to this to this to the structural explanation for the incompetence of the British ruling class but he indicates that it kind of run it's kind of uh, cuts uh, across so broadly that it's something which can't isn't reducible to a single individual yeah and that's why this point that he makes about empathy deficit so basically, I mean, this is kind of like a like a Navarro left a left talking point. The Tories yeah, don't know exactly. they don't know what it's like to be poor. Like, it's a pint of milk, Michael. What could it cost? Ten pounds? It's like that kind of like oh, the Tories are so out of touch. They have no they have three different sorts of bread that they eat. I mean, it's like well, you know, but late. Labor How many sorts of bread do you have to eat, George? Because you don't read newspapers, you don't know who Mervyn King is, but you've got multiple sources of bread to eat. Is that well? It? You've got to you've got to right. shift your resources where you think it's important, and so you shift to multiple breads rather than. You've got to have an everyday sourdough. You've got to have a whole meal. You've got to have a baguette on on occasion, and you've got to I have some spelt or something rye yeah. if you're really quite hungry. But anyway, I mean, I guess just maybe this is a, a cheap shot against the Labour Party, but like. If the Tories have a, an empathy an, an empathy deficit, then Labour kind of just loathes poor poor people. The Labour politicians they they may have the empathy, but they also have the um, the revulsion. It just made me think that like yeah, I mean, if we had a Labour government, would would this same yeah? Point of apply? course, there'd be no inflation. Yeah. They have well, there'd be inf there'd be inflation, but they'd have empathy for us. That would be nice. At least they you know well a kind of pretending to be sad that everything is costing more and we can buy less but anyway well that's enough of that bread chat um no doubt the price of bread will continue rising as will other things for a little while so we'll keep an eye on this issue and we'll return to it at some point again soon we hope you've enjoyed this let us know what you think drop us a review wherever you get your podcasts if you can um, and uh, just to announce once again, we will be doing a live event in Berlin and in Munich on the 8th and the 9th of June. Uh, details should be with you already, but um, hope to see you there if you happen to be in Germany. Catch you then and uh, see you later. Bye-bye.